This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. This week, I'm talking with my good personal friend, Dan Little. Dan and I met through work a few years ago, and we immediately hit it off, not only because we're both huge and enthusiastic nerds, but also because we learned very quickly that we each went to Christian colleges, and that is a tie that binds. This is a wide-spanning conversation. An integral part of Dan's life and his story is his experience within church, evangelicalism, and purity culture, and how that relates to his experience as a gay man, and how damaging it was to his development. That summary doesn't really do it justice, which is why we're all really lucky lucky that Dan can say all this in his own words, which he does very well, I might add. There's a profanity warning here up top. The show has a lot of it, so don't play it around the kiddos. I absolutely love this conversation. You can follow Dan on Twitter at sweaters, like the comfy thing you wear in fall and winter. But instead of an S at the end, there's three Z's. <laughs> That's at sweaters, S-W-E-A-T-E-R-Z-Z-Z. You can also follow me on Twitter at BR Chastain. And the show is found at Exvangelical Pod. Twitter is the beating heart of Exvangelical's media presence, but we're also on Facebook and Instagram sometimes. <laughs> And also Anchor from time to time as well, all at Pod. As always, you can support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash Pod. And for as little as a dollar a month, you'll gain access to the X community show's private Facebook group. You can also support the show for free by rating it on iTunes. Thanks to Deborah Nystrom and Rick Jones for your recent reviews. Deborah writes... After living for 60 years in the evangelical community and experiencing the world-altering dysphoria of the 2016 election, Blake Chastain's interviews are thought-provoking guides to alternative worldviews and fresh ways to look at Christianity. I particularly thought the interview with Peterson Toscano was mind-blowing. If the current cognitive dissonance in Christian culture has assaulted your faith, then these interviews may provide a touchstone for a more authentic faith experience or a guide out of the morass of guilt that often plagues the evangelical experience. Thank you very much for that review, Deborah, and I'm very glad to hear that the show is helping people, and I know that Dan's will help too, so let's get right into it. Hey everybody, welcome back to Exvangelical. I have with me my friend Dan Little. Dan and I worked together a couple years ago, and we've been friends ever since, and I'm really happy to have him on the show. Welcome, Dan. Thanks, Blake. It's great to be here, finally. <laughs> yeah, we've been talking about this for a while, and this is actually kind of cool because I, um, out of all the episodes I've done, I've done over 30 now, this is the third one I've done in person. So yes. it's pretty cool to to be able to to talk across the table from someone. So um, so let's just start with at the beginning. Where uh, did you grow up? When, where are you from? Uh, yeah, okay, so uh, I grew up in the Chicago suburbs uh, in Bolingbrook, for anyone who might know where that is. We have the other Ikea in Illinois. It's our claim to fame. Um, it's a pretty so big claim. It is, uh, although we were constantly told it wasn't as good as the Schomburg one, so take that for what it's worth. 
Um, but anyways, I grew up uh, in the Chicago suburbs, like I said, uh, with two parents who are still together, uh, which is, I feel, you know, fairly unique in the current landscape. Uh, and I grew up with two older sisters and then through a series of crazy revelations later in life, in my teenage years and beyond, I found I had a brother and another sister as well. Um, so I've got all of those siblings out there and um, a happy uncle of like seven kids. Um, but going back to my parents, uh, you know, I was raised with them my entire life under kind of a very hard evangelical Christian rule, uh, almost uh, totalitarian uh, from my father down, if you will. Um, so talk about that a little bit. What was the, um, uh, just in general, first, what was like, did you have like a denominational affiliation with that? Did you guys go to a, a church of a certain stripe? Yeah, so actually it's, a, I guess it is a little, the story's a little more nuanced than I'm, than I initially let on. Uh, my, when I was very young, uh, probably like three years old actually, um, my parents introduced me to this other boy who lived on the street, uh, you know, just as parents do, hoping to form early friendships. Um, mm -hmm. And we did. Uh, my friend Alex and I are still friends to this day, so now 25 years later. Uh, I still, you know, we'll talk every now and then. But anyways, uh, his family was very religious and Christian, uh, even before, you know, I came into the picture or anything like that. Uh, they belonged to the Nazarene denomination, okay. um, which, you know, you're more familiar with, I'm sure, being so close to Wesleyanism. Like, yeah, yeah. Very... I think it's called the Holy Holiness Tradition. So they both are part of that, like... And by the time, you know, our parents were growing up, it was very, like, uh, very conservative. It may not have had that sort of uh, original history, but that was what it was like. Yeah, so, yeah. I, uh, so I started going to church uh, with them at a really young age because they, you know, as, good Christian, as a good Christian family, they invited me to come along to Sunday school, uh, which, you know, as a kid, why the hell not? Like, sure. my first yeah. thought is, oh, it's just more time to go hang out with my friend there's usually treats involved <laughs> yeah often there's like a game that has some kind of prize so you know if there's some like jesus and all this other stuff in there so be it yeah um i'm not sure that my three-year-old self went through that cognitive process <laughs> no, i just no. uh, it exhibited <laughs> but somewhere sure. in there that was happening um so i started going to church then uh, and it was great, you know, as a kid, once again, Sunday school is not something that you, like, dread or that you really even think about. It's just, like, a fun whatever time with other kids. There's no grades. You're not, like, under and under any pressure. Um, so it was really kind of jarring when a few years after I started going with Alex and his family that uh, my dad started going to church on his own. Um, on his own? Yeah, I mean, he. it wasn't through anyone, or it wasn't through any of uh necessarily like like our family and it wasn't through any of our neighbors it was through his co-worker who he carpooled with to work gotcha um i yeah. guess they he started inviting him to uh like weekday bible studies yeah, like or a something men's bible study or something like that yeah something along those lines and i remember my mom driving me like by his church one night 
And looking back now at this moment, I, I think there was a level of like, she was kind of poking fun or I don't know that she wasn't even really sure how to feel about it because I don't really know why else she would have driven me by it. Cause it wasn't like a church or a cathedral or anything like that. It was like a suburban strip mall storefront, but not even like the storefront that's like on the front of the strip. It's like, you have to go to the, all the way to the end of the strip, take a right, go back towards that back alley where all the yeah. dumpsters are. <laughs> and that last front that's like right, right before that like why the hell did they build this yeah one? <laughs> and then like and then on top of that like they had white semi-sheer curtains across all the windows on the storefront of this church so you couldn't see in at all to anything that was happening and maybe that's normal i don't know i'm not you know a big attender of other storefront churches um, but it, especially as a kid, that felt really weird to me that like, sure. yeah. there was something kind of like veiled and, and closed off about whatever was happening inside that space that my yeah. dad was going to. And my mom was showing me this for some reason. And again, mm-hmm. it wasn't a Sunday. We weren't picking him up. It was just kind of like, I just remember driving by her pointing it out saying, that's where your dad goes. And suddenly thinking like, well, why doesn't he go to church with me? Like why? Yeah. Like I go to church and my dad goes to church, but we go. Why do we go to two different ones? Like I, it didn't really make sense to me. And did your, and did your mom go to church at all, or was that like a? Um, because it sounds like you didn't before, or right? Like your dad didn't, and did your? No. So yeah, I mean, so we were by all means, you know, a, an agnostic household. I would say like, um, we were never an atheist household, and I, you know, I think more. Um, more moderate people might even consider us a Christian household be, like before we started going to church just by the nature of like most white people in America are considered Christian yeah. by na- like by default for some stupid reason. Right. Yeah. Um, just cause we're cheesters and we occasionally go to like go to Christmas and Easter and whatever. Yeah. But yeah. Um, anyways, so no, my mom was not a part of either my going to church with my friend or my dad going to church. Um, she, just did our own thing. Uh, they, and, and I mean, like, and that was really confusing as a kid too. like, once again, trying to grasp like three different branches of thought of like, why am I going to my own church? Why is my dad going to his, sure. to his own church? And then above all of that, why isn't my mom going to either of these things? Right. Yeah. And so, so you were talking about your mom, your mom drove you by and then you were, you thought, why does my dad go here? Yeah. That's sort of spark that like initial idea of like, well, what's going on? Like why, like, why does my dad go here? Uh, as his son, like I wanted to, you know, I wanted to go to his church instead because, oh, I'm doing this thing. Well, my and my dad's doing this thing. Well, why can't I do the this thing with my dad? And I'm not sure. gonna, you know, he's not gonna come to my church because he's my dad and he's stubborn. But um, <laughs> he's not gonna listen to his four year old or five year old son when he has like an adult telling him that he should go to his church instead. Yeah. Well, my dad's church was a. Uh, quite a different beast of a thing from Alex's church. Alex's church was a Nazarene church, like I said, but they, you know, it was much more, I think, like what I think most people think of when they think of church. Uh, you know, you have your, you can come to your like early AM service. You can come to your like 10 your or your 11 AM service or whatever, the second service. Yeah. Um, and the first one's going to be much more like Bible heavy, uh, much more for like deeper faith Christians and then like they can go to like Bible study small groups during the second hour and really unpack that 
or if you're like a seeker, you know, the seeker friendly service would be the second one where there was no follow up afterwards. It was just more of like a, an easier message. You could kind of come in at an easier time. Um, and then, you know, usually during that time was, would be when the kids would go do like their Sunday school or whatever. And it was always like fun and everyone always had a great attitude and like, yeah, there'd be the occasional fire and brimstone here and there, just like there isn't any church, there's got to be a mention of like hell and consequence or whatever. But it was that wasn't the focus of the message. The focus was far and away like Christ's love and the transforming power of faith and, mm -hmm. you know, just kind of like progress and moving forward. And the Nazarene church specifically, I don't know so much the, however you call the bigger umbrella, but the Nazarene church is very focused on missions. It's a very missions focused yeah. um, organization. I think Phineas, Phineas P something or other is like one of the first Nazarenes and he was a missionary somewhere important. I obviously don't know my <laughs> Nazarene doctrine as well as I used to, but um, that's, that stuff fades. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyways, so, you know, like th that church in my head before I could even recognize it on a, on a conscious level was a positive environment. When I started going to my dad's church, it couldn't have been more of a night and day experience. Really? Um, his church was a Southern Baptist church. I mean, I guess like I can just leave it there. It's a Southern Baptist church, um, which has a lot of, uh, there's a lot of baggage people bring to just lining those three words together. Southern Baptist church. Like, yeah, absolutely. You know, you can take what you want out of your assumptions about that. And there's probably a lot of truth to that there. The focus wasn't on the transforming power of Christ. I mean, that was in there and yeah and all that, but it was always on consequence and damnation and punishment and, uh, just living like very like legalistically. Sure. It was all about legalism. I remember, you know, to the point, like legalism to the point of like, we had this awful man come in one time and uh, there was like this weird Christian college that everyone in my church used to go to called like Hiles Anderson or something like that. That one, that sounds a little familiar. It's like H-Y-L-S or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. And like, you know, to, I think it's like one, like a Midwestern kind of Pensacola situation where it's okay. like uber creepy, yeah, locked up, like gender separated, you know, that right. kind of thing. Um, some one of their like pastors or teachers or speakers or whatever came and spoke at our church. And he was a big favorite of our congregation. Like he was someone that spoke several times a year with us and they'd make a big deal about it when he's coming. Um, but man, I remember as a kid sitting there listening to one of his uh, sermons and he was talking about something to do with, you know, God's justice and law and how he has to follow through on his punishment so that that, like in order for him to remain like a just God, he can't not punish you if he says he's going to kind of thing. Cause then yeah. what? And so then he uses the, the, the allegory or the analogy, um, or the, sorry, probably neither of those words are right. The example of, of his own son. And he was talking about, you know, he's like, uh, my son kept going up and touching my stereo speaker dials. And, and I would tell him like, Timmy, don't touch those dials. If you touch those dials, you're getting a whooping. And so he went ahead, he touched those dials again, and I went and I got my belt. And like sitting there as a kid and like listening to that, I was just like, there's something really, really, really messed up about this. Like, like you think it's justifiable to hit like a four or five year old 
with a belt because they touched your radio knobs. And I get there's like, it's an act of defiance that you're trying to, you know, work out of your child by yeah. beating that out of them. Or... There were air quotes, by the way. Like, yeah, sorry, air quotes. <laughs> <laughs> I forget that there's no visual element. Um, yeah. But, you know, it was that kind of like legalism to me of like, well, I told him if he touches it, I'm going to beat him. And he touched it, so I beat him. And it's like... Yeah, you were putting that together as messed up as a, yeah, as a kid. Like yeah. that was, uh, you know, and, and especially as an adult looking back, like to me that's just like missing the entire concept of like the core of Christianity is like, yes, there's a law and there's legalism, but then like isn't Jesus, like isn't the whole message of Jesus like to that he's above that law, that like his like compassion extends beyond like the, the legal law of the old covenant and like we're supposed to be Jesus <laughs> in the world and yeah. like if we went up and gave everyone the punishment they deserved like every day, like what is that? Like that's, right. that's anger. That's uh, yeah. pettiness. That's like all these damaging things. And as a kid, I remember hearing that and like, and I don't know, I, you know, I obviously don't know what, which seed where was the first seed of my discontent with the whole faith gamut that I was running. Um, but I definitely can identify that as one of the earlier feelings of like not feeling in line with what I was hearing. Yeah. But in general, this church too, I mean, it, like I said, it was in a storefront. It was a dark, you know, fluorescent lit storefront with brown walls and brown carpeting. And so just the environment was kind of depressing. And then there were only three or four other kids in the church. So I didn't really have anyone to hang out with or any friends, which as a kid is awful. Yeah. But then you have, you know, um, someone like this guy, Brian, he used to go there and he was a good, you know, good friend of my dad's. And when him and his wife first had their first daughter and she was like three or four, um, I remember Brian going up to her and saying like, Hey Hannah, where's Jesus? And she was like, Oh, he's up in hell. I mean, up in heaven. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Let me take that again. Hey Hannah, where's Jesus? Oh, he's up in heaven. And then he would, you know, as kind of like a parlor trick for everyone to watch, he would go, Hannah, where's Santa? And she'd be like, down in hell. And she would even say it with like a really just like vicious voice, like this kind of like weird impassioned little girl, like about Santa being in hell. That's really weird. Um, <laughs> That's so weird. And so, you know, I feel like this is, you know, all colors kind of like the world that I grew yeah. up in. My dad, when I asked him about Santa for the first time, like if he was real, my dad pulled out a Bible, found the word Satan and explained to me that Santa is just an anagram for Satan. Um, and that he had taken all the meaning away from Christmas, just like Satan would, that he was just an idol in place of Jesus and in place of God. I would, anytime someone would give us like a Santa statue, like as a decoration, my dad would immediately throw it out. Um, you know, it was that kind of like environment that I grew up in. Um, and so I guess that like, I feel like that logically or maybe not logically um maybe obviously kind of leads to the the biggest proponent for me which was like when you know the early stages of puberty started to like roll through and and I started to really like question and come to terms with realize and become more cognizant of my own sexuality and my own like budding self of like who I was and who I was becoming and and the things I thought and the things I'd been raised with and and kind of how they made me feel, 
and so yeah, I mean, growing up in the Southern Baptist home, like being gay was obviously a no-go. Santa couldn't be in our house during Christmas. Like you certainly could not be gay in our home. Um, you know, it, my sisters got in trouble all the time for having a rap CD in their bedroom, let alone if I like, you know, came out of the closet to my dad, I couldn't even imagine what that would have looked like. Um, so real, real quick. Yeah. I'm, I'm probably I, trailing. Somewhere. Oh no, you're not trailing at all. Um, I, I actually, since you mentioned your sisters, I, I was wondering, were, were they present in these church things too, or was it just you and your dad that would attend, or what? And what was what was that part of it like? I, I, I mean, I be, we're definitely going to come, like come back to um, as you got older and, and became self aware of the fact that, that you were gay and everything. We, we're going to talk about that, um, but I'm just curious before we get there, what what the rest of your sort of home life was like. Um, you talked about your mom not going, but what was it like with your sisters? Did they go? That sort of thing. Yeah, so I mean, that that story, like many stories involving my siblings, is always going to have like a bunch of caveats and weird disclaimers and scriptures. <laughs> um, sure, yeah. Um, but my so my my sisters who I, uh, like, the, the two sisters who, if I'm ever talking to anyone that I refer to as just these are my sisters, are Melanie and Crystal and... They, but they're still my half siblings. I don't have any full blood, full blood siblings. Another air quote. Sorry, guys. Um, I don't have any full blood siblings. Uh, my dad and my mom. My my dad is my mom's current and last remarriage. Um, before that, she was married to a man named Jim, where she had my sisters Melanie and Crystal. And then before that, um, you know, when she was in high school or whatever, or just after high school, she had a couple of children with we no one knows um and i was raised with one of them being told he was my uncle and one of them i just didn't know existed until like two years ago um so i usually don't include those two siblings when i refer to my siblings or my sisters Mm -hmm. just because they're they're much more detached in my head from from that experience from your experience of childhood yeah growing up and you know we're still figuring that out but yeah melanie and crystal though uh I, we were raised, you know, fairly simultaneously, like, you know, or fairly alongside each other. They were five and six years older than me. Um, but, you know, they were present for any pretty much, like, big life point. And uh, my mom had shared custody with Jim, so we'd get them every couple weeks or something like that. Like, he definitely had the dominant custody up until they went into high school. And then my somehow my mom got primary custody over them. And then they were, I was with them all the time. Um, but any time that they were with us before that, on weekends, they did have to go to church with us. Gotcha. Okay. Um, but my dad was, like, you know, a little more lenient with them. Like, he wasn't, I wouldn't say lenient. My dad, there was no time in, in our childhood where I think you could ever use the term lenient to describe my dad about anything. Um but with them, I think he knew that he walked a fine line of trying to get them to view him as a father figure, if not, you know, a father, their father, because they have one. Um, and then also being the good Christ- evangelical Christian that he's supposed to be and, and getting them their souls saved and, and bringing them to church. And uh, so, you know, he was constantly battling that battle with them and, and they had their own battles with him. And so... There was never a point at which we were like each other's support system. 
through that yeah, because it was kind we, of a one-to-one relationship yeah and we all i think we all like especially me being five or at the most six years younger than my sisters and yeah. them being 10 months apart i think their struggles were a lot more united with each other whereas you know i don't even think they saw me as struggling because i started going to church before my dad and and i was always like so gung-ho about yeah my faith like at least outwardly so um yeah mostly because I was terrified that if I was anything but gung-ho, I was going to end up burning in hell forever and ever. But, um, so yeah, they didn't, I mean, they weren't terribly, like, present. There was, like, a weird point in high school where Melanie started getting, like, really, like, she started taking a lot of ownership of her faith and, like, in a lot of interesting ways. I mean, she was never, like, my dad or never, like, anyone you'd see, like, Bible beating or handing out, tra- like, chip tracks or whatever you call those or... Um, but she, you know, got really into Veggie Tales uh, <laughs> as a high schooler for some reason, um, and it, which and like she was really into. She, my sister's, got a huge nurturing heart, and she was always really into like uh, childcare. She took uh, classes on childcare and stuff like that, and she would constantly babysit and watch other people's children. Um, and so with veggie tales was like something that she would always play for kids that she was babysitting and she would get really into that and she you know when she had her own child for the first couple years like you know they'd bring her bring her to sunday school or whatever and so i think melanie has always had like that kind of casual relationship with her faith and then crystal Mm -hmm. just never gave like gave two shits about her faith just never resonated with her she was always she's the second child so you know anything melanie did crystal had to go the other direction on so when melanie had a personal faith crystal had no faith and you know stuff like that so um okay so yeah that was that was their relationship to the whole thing it was very disconnected from mine yeah and i i can get how that didn't um i i'm five and a half years separate from my sister and so that age difference developmentally when you're a kid it's like it's a cavern like you're so far removed from what their experiences are uh, just because you know the 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 pace at which you develop is so fast when you're young that like I, I don't know I, I definitely I I empathize with that it wasn't as uh, as far as as far as the age difference goes you know it's it's hard to to reach across that when you're a kid um so you mentioned that, like, you know, there were no no Santa Clauses allowed. Like, did they police, like, your sort of media stuff and and all of that? What, I mean... So I think, like, if... I think if there were a, a, a more defined line growing up, like, if my parents had actually taken a firm line... A hardline stance? Is that the term? Sure. Yeah, yeah, that's stance. good. Yeah. Uh, taking a hardline stance on media or anything really yeah. like it it might have made things a little easier i mean there still would have been a whole mess of everything to parse through with my sexuality and and just a lot of other interpersonal things with them but to add on that was their very self-contradicting views on what media was appropriate, what media wasn't appropriate. I could watch Alien, and I could watch Halloween, and I could watch The Shining, but I couldn't watch The Simpsons, and I couldn't <laughs> watch Will and Grace. You know, like, there was, like, this very, like, strange disparity between, like, what was okay and why it was okay and what wasn't okay yeah. and why it wasn't okay. It was, like... 
Hmm. Alien and Halloween were okay because it was a battle of like total evil against like just the forces of like common good. You know, there's no like gray area really in there. You're never like, gee, I wonder if the crew on on the Nostromo and Alien should have like maybe they all deserve to die, but it's like, oh no, they're clearly all just they're supposed to be good guys. Like we want all of them to survive. But then you get something like Simpsons. That boy is disobedient. Yeah, and it it, <laughs> it fall it does fall into a much grayer area because you get like yeah your Bart Simpson who is pretty openly defiant and you get a Homer Simpson who is not the greatest patriarch in the world and and you get Marge the overworked matriarch who doesn't get the attention and love she deserves and you have Lisa who's like the unnoticed like prodigal child in the family who should be getting like help from her parents to go and achieve the things she's capable of like you get these gray areas in there about like because it's it's actually presenting fairly real people in an animated situation and I think my dad and my parents they just couldn't figure out like with those kinds of things the kind of conversation to have where it was much easier to be like Mike Myers is evil so <laughs> Jamie Lee yeah. Curtis needs to escape evil guy like right and yeah. and I think like they knew that the blood it wasn't so much the blood and the violence Although my dad still has, like, a weird thing about, like, saying fuck. Like, he has a huge thing about fuck in movies or sex in movies. Again, but this is, like, the dad who showed me Alien where people are getting their, like, insides ripped out and plenty of viscera across the screen. <laughs> yeah, like, that's... So, <laughs> and, and so that's what I mean. Like, if maybe there was, like, a hard line somewhere in there of, like, that really made a firm sense. Yeah. Maybe that would have helped some things... But I'm, you know, backwardsly grateful for that kind of lack of... Right, because it gave you exposure to <laughs> Yeah, I got that... to see a lot of things that, like, <laughs> that made me who I am today. Like, the, like, Alien as a movie is, like, you know, as someone who went to film school and someone who can talk endlessly about movies, I can tell you right now, like, and, you know, on another conversation for, like, a movie podcast or something, <laughs> I could go into, like, three hours of why Alien is, like, a perfect movie. And it's one of those things where, like, I've had decades now almost of like time to really just like wrestle and think and review it at different points in my life and see it and and wrestle and not that that's like a big groundbreaking life-affirming thing but it, it does add context and, and nuance to the person I became and the things that I love and the way that I view the world and the way that I'm able to analyze and depict or uh, uh, pull apart cinema or whatever yeah um, yeah and and I think you know I I am really grateful for for them, you know, and, and for them having that kind of lack of solidarity in what they expected. But also, I do know that some of it came from a level of trust, too. Like, my, as a kid, I was always a little more mature than my sisters ever were at, at my age, at the, you know, when they were at the same point. Um, and often, like, you know, people would... I'd always, like, have friends that were older than me and very rarely friends my own age and things like that. Um, so I think my parents, you know, they trusted my maturity level in a lot of regards, too. And I, I also am really grateful that there were times that I feel like they took me as a person into context rather than just being like, oh, he's five or well, probably not that young. Like, oh, he's nine. He can't handle this. Like actually thinking, well, he's nine, but like he can handle this. And we'll talk, you know, they did do stuff like that. So I, I give them credit yeah, um, yeah, where it's good. due in that regard. And um, yeah, so but but again, going back to the messiness of it all. 
that was kind of like a microcosm of everything in in my upbringing. Uh, just this, you know, for every Alien versus Simpson kind of situation, it w- could be like my mom versus my dad situation. And not that they would ever like fight with each other, but my mom wasn't a churchgoer. And my dad was like what you would call a Bible beater. Um, and so like he would have a firm, hard view on something. And my mom, it wouldn't even be that her view is different because my mom was such a, she's actually very weak as a person in a lot of ways. And she's very afraid to form and, and put forth her own opinions in order in fear of like being shot down or being fought with. Like uh, you mean in like feeling timid or something like yeah, that? Yeah, like she just, like... I mean, she just has never stood up to my dad, like, uh, like politically, religiously, like anything like that she has ever had like a softer or more open-minded stance on he's let her or she's let him dominate the viewpoint on that and so you know like this last election like it was basically you know we couldn't talk about anything politically because of my dad you know it wasn't like my mom had like was she wasn't she was afraid to share her views she didn't want to talk to him about it like she that's just kind of who she was and so growing up that made it hard too because if my dad made what i would consider like an unreasonable call about seeing like austin powers when all my friends were going to see austin powers you know i'd go to my mom and my mom would be totally fine with it and she'd be like oh yeah you know whatever like i think he's fine and then like i would literally watch them get into kind of like a spat about it because they'd have two differing arguments and my dad would always win uh and he always had the firm hand and so it was just constantly like that going up this constant thing of like my dad saying something and me wanting to believe that, but then having another parent who I'm supposed to respect just as equally, not sharing that same viewpoint, it's like, you know, it started to make me under or uh, reconsider how much credence I gave to my dad's perspective on things. And, and slowly, you know, day by day, question by question, like little chips started to break in the facade uh, of yeah. kind of like my faith. Um, but the weird part, I mean, and maybe not the weird part and probably anyone who's gone through something like, you know, that where they're wrestling with their face or faith or walking away from it or whatever is that at least for me towards the end is when I got my most fervent and my most impassioned about my faith. And I think, you know, it, it was partially out of like my insecurities and my fears of what I was wrestling with and coming to terms with this being true about myself that I felt like the harder I poured myself back into the Bible or the more Christian scholars, the more John Pipers and Rob Bells and, you know, I've never read an N.T. Wright, but N.T. Wright just because I'm throwing out names of <laughs> Bible scholars. Um, but the more, like, you know, I could read the more articles, the more professors, the more chaplains I could talk to that maybe somewhere, like, someone would have like the golden line or the magic incantation that would suddenly like make all these things that I was saying and all these things that I was doing actually come together in my heart and turn me into this like great white straight heteronormative Christian male who is going to go out and marry and have 20 evangelical Christian children (laughs) who are then going to go out and spread the seeds of the Lord into the world. They both look the same Put them out on the world On every boy and every girl Send a neon bite A neon 
think that was uh, um was it your fervency did you feel like it was a, an attempt to you, you we only we we briefly touched before we 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 packed unpacked a little bit more about your about sort of your home life um about you you know during puberty beginning to work out yourself and your sexuality was that something that was sort of at the heart of your fervency did you feel like that was something you wanted or needed to change um yeah i'm not I, i'm not, it's 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 up to you how we how we approach this part um i mean we can <laughs> i mean it, we was that was that part of it or um or was there uh, was there more to it um no um here i'll, I'll answer i can answer that long-windedly but easily um so first off anyone who says ever from any perspective at any point that sexuality is not a big part of who you are is completely wrong like which was like the first lie that the church teaches Sorry, not the church, because I don't want to. I don't want to villainize the church as a whole, because I do know that there are many arms of the church that are actually working in compassionate ways. Um, but I, when I say the church, I mean the core evangelical, like full-on right-wing church that we've defined in America through this past election and through the last sure. eight years. You know, the way that you would see the radical right, um, I guess. Um, I think the first lie that they teach anyone who's struggling or coming to terms with their sexuality, or even before that, like a lie that they've like started planting a seed in before you're even at that point, is that your sexuality is just one small fragment of the person that you are. And to me, that that is like the easiest lie to tell someone, the easiest lie to get someone to believe too. And it's like, it, it's the gateway lie of rejecting your sexuality pushing these things away going into ex-gay and conversion therapy these all start with like the one single lie that your sexuality isn't a big part of who you are and so when you start to feel those gay feelings you know you can teach yourself as a christian be like well this isn't a big part of who i am i don't really need to acknowledge these feelings i don't need to fulfill these feelings they're not affirmable affirm affirming feelings in my life these are just just one small part of me um if i can change you know with enough practice i can become a right-handed writer or you know with enough practice i can learn to play the trombone but with enough practice this other small part of me can convert to another like to can change in the way that every other small part of me can change with practice and time and commitment and and all that and and i think you know right like from that very core, I just want to say that like that it's bullshit. Like your, your sexuality is an insanely huge part of who you are. Not only is it a big part of who you are, but it might be one of the biggest parts of who you are. Yeah. Your sexuality defines so much about how you interact with people, about how you view the world around you. You know, I like if you're a straight man, you can't tell me that literally every girl that you pass on the sidewalk, you evaluate. Like, I don't care if you think they're hot or ugly or, or whatever. Like, you notice them like I like you notice every girl and, and it, whether it's just to notice them and say I don't want to notice them anymore you notice them and and that's something is like a, after I like came out of the closet I realized more and more was like how little I notice 
girls that pass me by on the street. Like I just, I can go an entire day and look back and not be able to recall the face or look of another, of one single woman I passed on the sidewalk. But I could tell you how 50 different dudes looked <laughs> that day. Mm-hmm. And, and like, I know that's like a stupid example, but like that, that's just another example of like, what a big part of your sexuality. It's just like the fact that you walk down the street and every single person you look at is registered through the lens of your sexuality. Yeah. And through like, yeah. And so it's just one small thing that is like affected by this giant part of you. And so if you can think of just like how that one thing is affected, you can think about how everything is affected from how you work out or like treat yourself to the clothes you wear, to the things you see, to the music you let people know that you listen to, to the books you're reading, to the authors you follow, to the comics you read, to the arts you're into, to the sports you play, to the, I mean, these are all the, it affects every single thing in your life. And I don't care yeah. if anyone ever says that it doesn't. So saying all that to go back to your question about whether my sexuality was kind of a, a, like the starting place of my pivot away from the, the evangelical church. Yeah. And I mean, also, I, I'm also curious, like you definitely received that why in a context, like, I mean, through the church you attended was there like a youth group or like uh i'm jumping ahead a little bit um but i know that you went to christian college um i'm sure that it was probably (laughs) espoused there um so so did you sort of receive those in the sort of places that are kind of common you know like either through books or through the sermons or through youth group and purity culture i mean purity culture we talk I, i tend to ask everybody that's around our age this question because everybody sort of gets uh, can uh, has to deal with it um it's like a very specific type of evangelical baggage mm-hmm. um and the thing about purity culture is it totally um erases non-hetero people it, it's not even and which is damaging as well but anyways that's a that's a long and leading question so <laughs> yeah yeah i can definitely uh try to unpack all of that along with addressing that initial question as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. And yeah, and, and yeah, please keep reining me back in because I'm, oh, no, it's, I realize like in trying to tell the story of my life, I'm skipping over big, uh, I'm telling like bigger arcs. And so, yeah, anyways. Um, whoops, sorry. Purity culture, high school, youth groups, and my sexuality <laughs> uh, could be like the name of maybe like my memoir or a chapter <laughs> memoir. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, like you said, anyone in the millennials, I think specifically the millennial age bracket is kind of like the birthplace of purity culture in a lot of ways. Like there's obviously like, obviously like purity was a big focus of everything of Christianity for a long time, but not to the, again, to use the term that I used earlier, not to the legalistic way that it became specifically for like our youth culture where suddenly and maybe this wasn't, maybe you didn't um, experience this, but I'm sure you did, Um, where purity culture became so, and I'm going to go back to the other questions, but purity culture became so legalized that I remember having like such ridiculous conversations, like looking back and just thinking, oh my God, I can't believe, how embarrassed I am that these conversations even existed where you'd have like straight Christian dudes breaking down essentially like, so it's okay that I kissed her goodnight on her doorstep, but it's not okay if I kiss her when we're sitting next to each other in the car because that opens a door 
for us to become more intimate in that cl- and it's like and like I would hear these kinds of like legalized breakdowns of like where it was okay to kiss a girl and and when it was okay to do something and and maybe like some cuddling in this context is okay but not in this context and it's like and I just remember like that kind of again like this yeah. weird like breakdown of like purity purity culture of like like uh, it was it, it was bizarre but then again like it, it does it it very easily kind of folds back into I think the the overall like issue if you will of the broader game of evangelicalism which is that well I don't know if yeah, I well to uh, to sort of someone summed it up um, for me really well recently in that purity culture is like the pre-marriage version of complementarianism, which you know sees women as subservient to men and submissive, and complementarianism is in service of patriarchy. Like, yeah, like there's like a clear line, and it's like as soon as I saw that, like light bulbs went off. So to me, like it's basically the very it's a way to it's essentially a form of control pre-marriage to basically maintain heteronormative patriarchy <laughs> um, yeah, to, to like give it, to give it like a, you know, a more academic or I don't know. So someone will sound, you know, call me a liberal snowflake for that, but you know, it's like, it's the truth. So, yeah, no, and... um, so, so for you, you were, you were in this context, you, you were understanding that you're gay and then, yeah, so I guess, like, just to add on to that real quick. Yeah, purity culture is, like, definitely a persistence, or the per- the persisting of gender norms and, you know, cisgender heteronormative uh, gender roles and things like that. And then on top of that, it, as you kind of said earlier, is it, in doing that, it then excludes the, non, the non-heteronormative. Like, when, when you are what you would consider a straight man struggling with gay feeling, but you know, it's how I considered myself for a long time as a straight man with gay feelings. Um, there's no boundaries in purity culture that explain like what, like where you're, where you're allowed to move or what that looks like. Um, and, and so I, and I, and I want to revisit that in a second. I, but I want to flip back a little bit to like, just, to quickly recap, like high, like high school, the beginning of my sexuality, and into college, sure. to, to yeah. then kind of go back and relate yeah. to that idea. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, so, because then, I mean, my the story of my like coming to turn or coming out or realizing that I'm gay is, you know, fairly I think straightforward for most. Uh, I would say for a lot of queer people, um, where it's kind of just, it's not like a one day you realize a thing. It's something that, it's more like one day you realize that you've known it all along kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it's not so much like, oh my God, I'm gay. It's like, oh my God, I'm acknowledging that I'm gay. Um, and for me, it started when I was in middle school and me and my friend Ryan, we would you know, stay up really late at his house during slumber parties and watch um, Skinamax or you know, Cinemax late yeah, night softcore yeah. porn. Yeah. Um, and I, and like, you know, in softcore porn, all they ever show is like women's boobs. And... I, like, it was the first time that I had been exposed to to porn and, and this kind of just, like, easy nudity. And all I kept thinking was, like, why won't they show the guy's penis? Like, why won't they show his dick? Like, why can't I see anything on these men? Like, I want to see, like, what's going on here. Like, and and I thought, 
and I have those thoughts for months before it ever occurred to me that these were gay thoughts. Like it never occurred to me that lusting and wanting to see men naked was actually a gay thing. And I knew what gay gay men, I knew what gay men looked like, but yeah. it just like, it, it, I had never allowed my, I hadn't allowed myself yet to like reconcile the idea that the things that I was doing were gay things. Um, and my friend found out, of course, cause like there's no, I mean, well, he found out pretty, because I was stupid, and, you know, when he'd go to bed, as I started to get more, like, curious and interested, like, I'd go on, like, I'd sneak on his computer at his house, like, while he was asleep, <laughs> and, like, look up stuff, and I was a middle schooler, not great about covering my tracks, and, you sure. know, and he found me, he found out, and threatened to tell everyone that I knew, and all of my family, and all these things, so wow. I made up an excuse about how he's just an asshole, and that my parents don't need to answer the phone if he ever calls again, and... Luckily, back then, that's all you really need to do because we didn't all have cell phones and there wasn't right. a way to, like, blow up my Facebook or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was that for a while, and I was able to kind of bury that down um, until wow. until high school uh, when I um, really, really took ownership of my faith. Um, so, you know, there was, when I was a kid, went to mil- or Sunday school with my friend until my dad started making me go with him. Then there was like this huge chunk um, between, you know, probably like six years old and 13 where I was going with my only to my dad's church. Like every other church was hell bent. Like he would pull out like other, you know, doctrines and from other churches and show me where they went wrong and why they were going to hell and whatever. Um, and then his attendance with church started to wane. And as that started to wane, he started to be a little more open to me attending church again with Alex and his family and so that was towards the end of middle school. I started to go with him to like uh, Wednesday night Bible studies with like the youth group. Um, and then through that is probably like right around then is when I got kind of indoctrinated into the purity culture and into, I took ownership of my own faith in wanting to go with Alex to, to Trinity Church of the Nazarene. And I started getting involved. When I got into high school, I started volunteering to lead the middle school Bible studies on Wednesdays um and be like you know just a high school leader in the group you know I got really involved took a lot of ownership of my faith and 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 I and a huge part of that looking back like you asked me earlier was it had a lot to do with with my sexuality and and this hope that well first the first thought was that I was gay as a punishment that I hadn't been faithful enough and that me being gay was just God's way of keeping me from being distracted by women. And that if I were faithful enough to him, he would allow me to have that attraction again so that I could build a family and have a full life <laughs> as was presented to me by my family and every other like heteronormative couple in the world. Um, and so that was like the first thought and I hoped that by going more and, and building out this faith and, and whatever that I would s- see some kind of progress and growth and change. Um, and so when that didn't happen by my sophomore year of high school, I took what I felt was, you know, a pretty brave move and I contacted my youth pastor. And at this point I had never, I hadn't told a single soul ever like about these thoughts or anything, I hadn't ever acknowledged them. I hadn't spoken out loud to anyone that I had even like the slightest attraction to other men. Um, so I emailed my youth pastor. And I remember the email, of course, was like incredibly dramatic and basically about like, if you don't ever want me to come to the youth group again, 
like I totally understand um, I'm just reaching out to you because I need help <laughs> um, and to his credit you know the first thing he did when he saw like you know he immediately responded like let's get together like let's talk and the first thing he did was like he gave me a huge hug and you know it was just like I love you you know you're loved like don't forget that and so you know that was something nice that he did among many other horrible things that he did um, and from there, from that first meeting with him, uh, after the email, we would stay in contact, emailing, you know, almost every day, every other day. We would meet once a week. Um, and that kind of started an unofficial process of, like, praying away the gay, uh, where we would meet and we would pray. And there were all kinds of books that he would give me about, you know, weeding out the darkness and the evil in my soul. And, yeah. um things like that and, and seeking the healing power of prayer. And, um, you know, I just, we, I got a lot of information about that and, uh, and a lot of talking. And then <laughs> simultaneously, I remember just to really fuck with my mind even more, I was reading, um, I'm sure you've heard of it cause it was like the dating Bible of Christians. Um, I kissed, or it was the sequel that I kissed dating goodbye. Oh, Boy Meets Girl. Boy Meets Girl. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, of course, like, as someone who's already, like, feeling, like, shitty and, like, a nothingness and someone who doesn't feel like I have a role in the world, to then start reading a book about, like, this epic courtship romance, another air quotes on courtship, guys. Yeah. Uh, this courtship romance of this, like, man and this woman and, like, all these, like, cute little stories about the things that they did to fall in love, like, over the course of years and blah, 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 did nothing but just damage my own self-perception more than it already was like damaged because now here I am like oh god like I can't even get myself to be attracted to a girl let alone take like five years to like woo and write letters to her and like, right yeah whatever crazy things um, I need to do in order to have this god-centered like biblical romance uh so <laughs> dude you just totally slipped into it like god-centered biblical romance like <laughs> yeah that is that is uh, Christianese, if, if right? I've ever heard it. Yeah, like, you know, I, like, I want to make sure I knew how to leave room for Jesus in the middle. Um, and so, you know, like, so anyways, all of that just kind of, so praying away the gate with my youth pastor was, I don't know. I think, that, you know, everything is a domino. So that led to the next big turning point, which was my mom got really suspicious as to why. I was meeting with my youth pastor once a week on top of going to church and on top of going to Bible studies. Like why I also had to have this like one-on-one -on -one with him. And I can't imagine like what was going through her head. I don't know if she thought it was a Catholic church priest touching her little boy kind of thing, or if she thought it was, you know, something more along the lines of he was helping me with something that she felt she needed to be aware of. I don't know. And I'm assuming it was the latter and she, it was all about protecting, protecting, but either way, she uh, broke into my email and read all of my correspondence between me and my youth pastor while I was at high, while I was at school. Uh, called him, he told her everything, which is fine. I understand. He, you know, he told me straight up. He's like, I just didn't feel right lying to her, uh, especially since she saw all the emails. And I was like, Yeah, you know, it makes sense. Like the proof is there. Like there's no reason to deny at that point. Um, and so I came home. And was confronted with this uh, one day. I think it was like my sophomore or junior year of high school. You know, my mom, of course, makes a huge deal about it because she always made a huge deal about everything. And, you know, it's kind of this weird, weepy, ang like sad, angry confrontation about, you know, 
she ha I mean she also happened to find like one video that I happened to not delete on the computer um, and so it, it turned into just a huge thing with her um, it's like it's not even really like easily easy to describe other than it's just like a lot of words a lot of like crying a lot of like things said that essentially resulted in like me telling her the same thing I was telling everyone, which is like, I, I have these thoughts, but I don't want them. I'm not a gay man. I'm a straight man with these thoughts and I'm working to get rid of them. Like I'm going to marry a woman and I'm going to birth you grandchildren someday. Don't you worry. Um, and then from there, it kind of got swept under the rug. My, you know, my dad knew about it. And he made like one quick, like mention to me later in the day. He was like, uh, when he came home from, he was like, oh, uh. When I was your age, you know, I had a moment where I, like, questioned myself a little bit and blah, blah, blah. And that was literally, like, all he said and he walked away and, like, we never ever talked about that again. And, like, we never had a real dialogue, me and my mom or my dad, about that scenario. Instead, my mom thought it was better to insert snide and demeaning and destructive comments wherever she could about how I was never going to get married or how I would never have children or how, you know, all these like things about how I will never give her grandchildren. And she would say it in front of family members who had no idea like about what I was going through. And I was like, why, like, you know, first of all, like this is between you and me, like, why are you presenting this? But two, I'm telling you, I'm trying to get rid of this. And like, why won't you just like, let me like get rid of this and like, um, it was just really rough, uh, and it really it basically destroyed my relationship with my mom for probably like eight years or more. Wow. Um, I mean, and, and she also did a lot of her own. She she ran us into a bunch of debt and had some financial issues, too, that affected my relationship with her, among also finding out about my siblings that I didn't know about. With All this put a big strain on us. Um, yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a lot to process for adolescents yeah <laughs> i mean and then, you know i'm already i'm still going through high school and i'm still i'm a, like i'm a fat i'm a fat kid in high school who's struggling with his sexuality who is also like prematurely way hairier than like most people around me <laughs> um so like high school for me i don't know that i could have had a worse four years i had like my own personal bully who like one day I spilled like a little soda and I happened to like drop on my like a little like drop on my crotch and he would follow me through the passing periods all day and like be and point at my crotch and like yell really loud like you peed your pants. Um, oh my god, what an asshole! So like fuck that guy, wherever he is. So I had no support from my <laughs> I had like no real support from my parents because I couldn't really talk to them about what was happening because all I got were these like weird, destructive and hurtful comments and they didn't they obviously had no idea what they thought about any of this. And I couldn't talk to anyone else about it. And, you know, my friends didn't really understand me. Um, and so that put me through a rough place in high school, which made me really want to, in seeking out a college, like, I basically wanted to go somewhere where I didn't know anyone because I wanted to start over. But I also wanted to go somewhere where that would be Christian because I wanted to have the light of God pouring into my soul and pushing the gay out on a daily level. Um, and I wanted somewhere that had a tight community cause I wanted friends and yeah. yeah. So, and I wanted to get away from my parents. Like my number one thing at that point was just to get out of the house because every day was living hell with my mom and my dad.
chose Judson University in Elgin, Illinois, which I'm sure many people are aware of. Yeah, uh, is that a Nazarene school too? I don't know. No, they're actually associated with the Northern Baptist Association. Oh, okay, okay. Um, yeah, I wasn't. I, I I didn't remember whether they were a Nazarene school or something else. Um, but yeah, all those all those very similar reasons. Um, well, like you know, wanting being very interested in God when you're in high school. I idealized the idea of Christian college too. Like looking back, like when I thought, <clears throat> I thought going to Christian college was going to be like going to some sort of Christian utopia where yeah. like <laughs> where like everybody is going to get along, everybody is going to um, you know be focused on getting closer to God. But no, I was just filled with the same sorts of assholes that I went to high school yeah. with. And they just all were nominally Christian. So, uh, but what 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 was Judson like for you? So Judson, so it's crazy because I feel like a lot of people who are who you who you've spoken to on these podcasts or that you and I or any anyone really who encounters that's you know part of the ex evangelical movement or the post church movement or whatever. Um, they often have like horror stories about their Christian colleges or Christian high schools or whatever. And, and I think there are a lot of awful Christian colleges out there that rightfully so have horror stories attached to them. Um, but I, I have to give a lot of credit to Judson where the credit is due, which is that I think as an institution, they're hyper conservative, but the whoever does the hiring there or whatever <laughs> um, doesn't listen to that ultra conservatism because actually most of the professors that I encountered in my time there were actually some of the most liberal Christian thinkers I've encountered. And, and now as a 28-year-old, I look back and I wonder if I had really pushed some of them or like really chant, like questioned them and, and wrestled with them, if they would have actually probably landed on the same page, a similar page to where I am now. Um, like for instance, my old Testament professor was this, you know, ancient man. Um, but he was, and you would think, or at least I would have thought that that means he would be, you know, kind of a literalist or whatever of the Bible, someone who reads the creation epic as truth and is literal truth, literal truth. Yeah. Um, and, six but, days. but he was literally the first like scholar, pastor, whatever, someone who I respected that had wisdom of the Bible that told me that that wasn't the case. He was the first one that was like, this is just poetry. There's two different stories happening in chapter one versus chapter two. They're two different epics. Like, and I know like no one had ever pointed out the disparity between those two chapters and explained that these are not the same story. It's not all like, it doesn't all mesh up. There's actually a lot happening here. And like, sorry to He's the first man that really started to like pull apart the Old Testament for me, and especially you know the first several books, and especially Genesis is a book that doesn't really have a defined like author or a defined like yeah, yeah singular purpose other than just to kind of be a collection of like early the earliest forms of history and literature. It's kind of like the rest of the New Testament jammed into one in terms of its context and style and what it's trying to convey. You've got poetry, you've got history, you've got right. songs, yeah. you've got prophecy, whatever. It's all right there. Yeah. Um, so like, you know, I had people like that, or I had a professor who would make, she made the joke. She's like, I'm a Lutheran, so we never read the Bible. Or, you know, she, like, I had professors like that. I, I was an art student and, and the art professors, like, they challenge, like, they encourage you to like push 
as many boundaries as you wanted to. Like you could do whatever the hell you wanted. They like, there was one student the year after I left who did this like giant photo collage of his entire life. Like, and it took up an entire room and like the whole, like as the wall went and transitioned to each year and he, I don't know how he had all these photos from his entire life. But as he got into like his adult years, like there were pictures of him just like smoking weed and like getting drunk and the art professor just didn't give two shits that these were on there. Like, they're like, yes, this is art. This is your, your expression. It was someone higher up in the administration who no one knows to this day went in and actually ripped those photos off of his installation. Wow. Um, and the art professors have no idea who it was. It wasn't like any of the, or they might, but no one's like saying, no one would say who it was, that kind of thing. Um, and I think that story in general kind of like sums up what Judson is, which is there's a lot of people there, a lot of professors, a lot of staff who have like, who actually have a really great grasp on the the compassion and the, and kind of the exciting aspects of what like a Christian life can look like, but they're constantly kept in check by the administration, the, the broader administration yeah. that holds them back and, yeah. and therefore holds their students back. Um, yeah. So, you know, like, I don't think any of my professors would have cared had I come out as gay, but if the administration had found out, they would have sent me to counseling, um, as they did with the girls' basketball team when, like, a majority of them came out as lesbians, like, several years before I went there. Um, so, <laughs> that's, not all, that's not to say that my time at Judson was great, but I will give Judson the credit for being sure. a school that didn't try too hard to push any distinctive view, and that as a Northern Baptist college... Their professors were from many different denominations. Yeah. Catholic, pro, uh, Lutheran, Nazarene, Wesleyan, whatever. Like, right. all over the place. Yeah. Um, but again, like, most of, my, most of my life, a lot of my pain has been self-inflicted through my own, through boundaries that I've set up on my, for myself. Um, and so in my time at Judson, wanting to not be gay, I took the opportunity to go to their counseling center um, because it was cheap to free because I was a student and I was broke and they were willing to let me pay like five bucks a session and um, go. And that's when I started my, uh, like a, uh, what do you call it? Con gay conversion therapy. Oh, or, or what, I, you know, I mean, and, and once again, it wasn't, it wasn't maybe as, um, defined and structured as like the Exodus movement. That's, which do you know about Exodus, right? Exodus um, International I've, or whatever. Yeah, I've heard. Yeah, I've heard of that one. Um, um, they're like the predominant ex-gay, right. yeah, fucked up organization that yeah. shouldn't exist. Um, right. I don't think it, was, it wasn't anything like structured like that. And I don't think my counselor was pulling anything from that. But I made it very clear when I went in that the reason I was there was because I was depressed suicide and suicidal because I was gay and I felt like I was you know and that wasn't right and and he allowed me to whether or not he agreed with that he allowed me to foster and perpetuate that perspective on myself and so that became kind of like the last like truly big step I took in the direction of wanting to um renounce my sexuality or or get rid of that um was definitely like that 
that point when I was like, I'm going to go to therapy and I'm going to get rid of this. Um, and it was interesting. And I wouldn't say that that part of it was as damaging to me as that part of it can, can and has been for a lot of other people who go through the conversion therapy process. Um, I'd already done so much damage to myself and my own self-worth leading up into that, that there was nothing that was done in that process that made me feel worse about my sexuality or about myself. So I don't really look at that as the downfall of you know myself and the way that it, people who are otherwise fairly healthy that go through that can end up like really fucked up on the other end. Um, I was just fucked up to begin with. Uh, and, and then that... During that period, I was living in an all-male dorm, as is pretty standard among Christian universities to have yeah. gender-divided dorms. Um, but being a man struggling with his sexuality um, in a predominantly freshman and sophomore male dormitory of men whose sexuality and sexual energy is so incredibly repressed because of their faith oh, upbringings yeah. <laughs> yeah having and then yeah. you want to toss in this is gonna this is where i was gonna say i'm roping back in purity culture you want to throw in some purity culture bullshit all up in there as well i don't even i, I don't know that, <laughs> unless you're a gay man who went to a christian college and lived in an all-male dorm i don't know that there's a way to communicate the level of pure just like animal frustration that exists <laughs> oh inside of you when yeah. like these and and and, may, and I know that and my dorm had a really specific reputation for being like super like homo I guess for like a straight dorm not that the guys in it were gay but like you would walk by a dorm room and you'd see like four straight dudes like spooning on a bed watching the Sarah Connor Chronicles on Fox or right something. yeah you know and like maybe two of them would be like shirtless or you know, like so it was like you know uh, a soft core gay gay calendar spread every day living in this kind of dormitory yeah. where like it was like you know and i lived in one of those for two years yeah so. where like i you know my like ra was like this big like really muscular like good looking like you know scandinavian uh blooded <laughs> seven foot tall blonde hair blue eyes like adonis and like you know he, like, I'd be laying on the bed watching TV, and all of a sudden he'd come, like, plop down the bed next to me, like, shirtless, and, like, watch the TV. And it's, like, in my head, I'm just, like, exploding inside because there's just so many things that I can't say to him. There's so many things I'm feeling. There's so many things that he's feeling that he's not aware of that he's feeling that, like, not for men, but, like, sexually and carnally that, like, he can only express with me because of the rules of the world and culture and boundaries he's put himself into and yeah. then he doesn't realize how much that's fucking me up because of, like, what I'm struggling with. And it just becomes this, like, whole hotbed of, like, everyone's frustrated and everyone's a little, like, tense. And so you get kids getting married at, like, 20 years old so they can go fuck each other and then, like, <laughs> yeah. and then get divorced, like, two years later. Like, the joke and maybe the yeah. truth that Judson is their divorce rate is just as high as their marriage rate is, I'm pretty sure, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, there, was a, there was an instance of um, two people that like got the hots for each other in freshman orientation secretly got married and then were found having sex in like uh one of their dorm laundry rooms like and then they were like it's okay we're married because like because <laughs> they went <laughs> yeah they went uh 
they went like to the courthouse and eloped so they could have sex because they had the odds for each other in freshman orientation. Right when like, I mean, and so and well, yeah. So exactly, and 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 that's crazy. I mean, that's not uncommon either. I mean, that's very common. And then what's like to me even crazier, like just being the pragmatist that I am, is the whole you know pot size of the pond, like. Judson was a thousand students and so to me like for these kids getting married it was like come on you're just getting married to bone because there's no way that you really think you found your soulmate in a when you're fishing in a pond of a thousand people like there are over six billion people in the world you think that in this small tiny little pond you in two years you found your soulmate as opposed to like experiencing a little more life like waiting a minute seeing you know not not only that they aren't their soulmate but that like they're rushing so far into it with before they graduate, before they like know anything, just so that they can like have sex, and then, right, you know, if that leads to divorce, then there's even more damage that comes on the back end of all of that because, Absolutely. and and so it just like, it's just a continued example of like that that purity culture and and kind of the waves and the ripples that flow out from that, and on the ways that no one really considers how they affect like gay people or whatever. And once again, like not having a boundary or, or an awareness or anything about like where I stood in the world, like made me feel like, yeah, well, why the hell won't I just like cuddle with my straight male dorm mates? Cause I'm clearly not going to get this kind of like love or male affection in the way that I want it because that would lead me to hell. Yeah. So where does that, I mean, when does this, when does, uh, not, I'm, I'm struggling for for the right phrase, turn of phrase here. Where where does, like, I don't know, where... where it's like a powder keg. So does the, does the keg blow up, you know? Like, like what, um, I mean, what happens for you where you are finally like, okay, that's it. I'm, 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 I'm done with this. I'm, was there a period where you were like that and you're like, I'm, I'm done with this, I'm, I'm gay, I have to accept that? Um, and how did that... How did that part of your your life happen, and how did it affect your understanding of faith and just your general sort of worldview? One of the one of the best, one of the weirdest places of truth that I found, but one of the or like philosophy that I found, and and something that like has stuck with me regardless of how much pop culture has trashed this source. Um, but in Matrix Reloaded, the second Matrix movie, um, which is a great movie. And I I'm, can argue for that. But anyways. <laughs> I'm with um, you on this. I actually really like Matrix Reloaded. There is this, <laughs> this great moment where Neo is, it's when he meets with the Oracle for the first time in that sequel. And they're sitting on the park bench and she's sharing candy and they're talking about choice. And he's like, you know, so I, I just came here to make a choice. Is that what you're telling me? And she says, she says to him, well, no, you've already made that choice. What you've come here to do is to figure out why you've made that choice. And so, like, that put a lot of things into perspective, and it's something that I think about all the time, like, is that, like, any choice that we're making or, you know, whoever, like, you know, if you wake up one day and you think to yourself, like, I want to be an ice cream man for the rest of my life or whatever, <laughs> it's not yeah. because, like, you suddenly woke up and you made that choice to be like, to choose this new career. It's because like maybe four years ago you made that choice and every other choice that you've been making since then has been subconsciously like leading you backward, back into that like singular and into that person or into that choice or, or whatever. And you're just at that point, 
you're figuring out why you've made that choice. Like the day that you decide, like, I am going to be the Iceman, it's like, well, that's not you deciding that choice. That was decided. What, what you're doing now is figuring out, like, why is this the choice that you've made? Like, what comes next? Where do you go from here? And so I think, you know, I could, there's no been, there was no explosion of a powder keg as to when this all shifted or changed. Um, but there are definitely defining, or there are definitely, like, big moments where it did change. But I can't, it, you know, again, it's, it's hard to say it's distinctly separated from everything that came before right. because yeah, it was absolutely. all leading to this to begin with. And, and for me, the, the big change came when, after my sophomore year at Judson, I, I had gone there to study film under the context of a Christian college. The film program at Judson was severely lacking. So I made the decision to transfer from Judson uh, to Columbia College in Chicago, where I had taken a class in high school. And as you know, almost anyone in the Midwest knows, Columbia is like the media arts college in the Midwest. Um, yeah. Because we don't have a UCLA or an NYU or anything like that. Right, yeah. Um, so I decided to go there. My outward choice or my outward reasoning for it was because it was a better film program. But again, the reason I made that choice was actually because I needed an environment that was freer for me to explore myself. And right. I didn't realize that. Or even if I did realize that I wasn't being outwardly truthful with myself, that that was the reason I was transferring Um, but it definitely was like, I definitely wanted, I don't know. I don't know if I knew what I wanted, but I wanted something different and I wanted to, I wanted a change in the environment. Um, you know, and it was 2009 when I transferred and I remember in the 2008 election when Barack Obama had won, um, being at this conservative Christian college, like my Facebook blew up with people at my college at this Christian college making racist comments about our about our porch monkey president or whatever oh you know kids at my school and I just remember and like for me that w- it wasn't the breaking point but it was one of many signs of like this isn't this community isn't the community I need to be in right now because right. I'm constantly yeah. at odds with so many of the things I'm being presented with when right. I'm here yeah it's like a death by a thousand cuts sort of yeah and thing. so I made so I made the big choice to transfer and go to Columbia and and of course like the first friend I make there is this girl who is like a total fag hag like she only hangs out with gay dudes like and she's kind of girl that like I could tell she was like that and I think I drew myself to her for that reason um, I was constantly like seeking open doors to walk through. I wasn't willing to open doors for myself, but I was, if there was an open door that would lead me to another point unraveling my sexuality, I was kind of like tentatively tiptoeing through them. Um, And so that involved trying to be friends with people who are friends with gay people so that I could then become friends with gay people. I was very intimidated by other gay men. So I was afraid to ever like introduce myself independent of like a girl or a straight dude that could introduce me. Um, and so Carol was like this first like entry point into that. And she was like my transfer ambassador, like the girl who helped me through orientation and transferring and we became friends or hanging out. Um, I started hanging out with her friends, Brian and Blair. And both of them called me, called me out right away on my sexuality. Like there wasn't a doubt with Brian or Blair, whether or not I was gay. Um, regardless of you know I absolutely denied it and like explained to them very I was very open with them I was like no I'm a Christian I'm a straight dude like I've got these issues like 
I understand where you guys are, and I don't think you're wrong for being gay, but I'm not. <laughs> it was, like, this very weird conversation, that, like, looking back, like, offensive conversation probably to have with two gay men. Um, but being friends with them and having those constant conversations and having them challenge me is what forced me for the first time in a long time to really consciously start challenging myself. And the further I broke away from Judson um, and that culture and the further I broke away from like Alex's family who I, you know, fell kind of away from, especially in my like college years, and the less I talked to my parents, you know, the less I was basically shackled by the Christian communities I, like, fostered for myself, the more I started to allow myself to to reconsider things, to really, for the first time, you know, I, I had doubts before, questions before, but for the first time I was thinking to myself, like, maybe this, maybe none of this does make sense. Like, maybe this actually is just all kind of, like, a ghost story that like we're all just hoping is true this god thing and jesus thing maybe it's all just kind of a hooey whack job whatever and i mean at the time and when i went to columbia i was going you know when i first transferred i, I was uh involved with campus crusades for christ um and i sought out christian groups within columbia initially um and my first like core group of friends outside of like caro and brian and blair were people i met through campus crusades for christ so it still continued this, like, disparity of, like, I had my, like, super liberal, like, gay friends over here and then my super conservative friends over here and, like, feeling like a man of two worlds trying to figure out, like, like how do I take this world that I grew up in and am not ready to just so easily dismiss and mesh it with this other world that I've rejected my whole life but is such a huge part of me and I'm ready to kind of, like, dive in and explore. And so that that, I would say, kind of in a way kind of came to a point or a powder keg explosion or a point or whatever uh, in the form of my friend Antonio. Uh, he was this guy who lived in my building. Uh, I didn't meet him until I started working at this movie theater. We became friends there and we found out we lived like eight floors from each other. And so we started hanging out all the time. We were movie nerds. We just like had a really similar sense of humor. He was a great guy. Quickly became one of my best friends, like one of my only friends at Columbia. Um, and then he started dating this girl, Callie, who was further along the like liberalization of herself from Christianity than I was probably at the at that time um but by him dating her and and us like just having like really good like trusting candid conversations eventually one night Callie his girlfriend had asked me just straight up point blank Dan are you into dudes and I responded Yes. And it was like the first time that I had responded yes without a disclaimer. Like I didn't have a yes, but yes, but I'm trying to get rid of this. Yes, I'm struggling with this. Yes, but I'm a Christian who doesn't believe this is something. It was the first time that I just like let myself tell someone like yes and let it sit there and just see how that sounded to me. And there's like a sense of elation in my soul of just like letting two people on, on the secret that I like that not only am I like gay but I'm actually secretly not ashamed of it too maybe yeah um was kind of just like this really like nice feeling and and Antonio and Callie were nothing but positive people to be around during that that phase because they just they never pushed me out the door but they like had my hand every step of the way like every step I took they were there to like help me make me 
comfortable. You know, Antonio would go with me to White Palace Diner at like 3 a.m. and just sit there and listen to me like ramble on for two hours about all the reasons that my faith should stay intact. And then another two hours about all the reasons that my faith was complete bullshit. And he would just sit there and like listen. And he's not someone with a faith background to even offer any kind of. He just let me wrestle and he let me just. First person, I probably, and that's probably what helped the most, was just someone letting me wrestle out loud without interjecting advice or their own personal baggage or anything. He just, right. he just let me like self therapy, like uh, self therapy essentially, like just talk it all out. And um, it was my twenty first birth or the week or two before my twenty first birthday. Um, I had never drank, you know, never done any drugs. I'd obviously never had sex with anyone. I've never like made out with anyone. I never it, like you know I was just a perfect pristine good Christian boy, the worst I'd ever done was, like, watch porn. Um, but, like, right before my 21st birthday, I had, you know, the, the culmination of all these conversations with Callie and Antonio kind of just finally presented themselves as, like, okay, I, I'm i gay. Like, I, I think I'm ready for this. Like, I think I'm ready to acknowledge that this is who I am, who I want to be, who I need to be in order to, like, start finding some sense of happiness in my life. Um, and so my, right before my 21st birthday, my buddies from high school who all like lived together in this big apartment uh, down in Urbana-Champaign at University of Illinois, they, uh, they invited me and Alex down for unofficial, which is like unofficial St. Patrick's Day at U of I, and it's like this crazy weekend of hard partying and debauchery and blah, blah, blah. And I had never, like I said, never done anything like this. And I was like, well, I'm sort of coming out of the closet to people. I'm about to turn 21. <laughs> like, yeah. why not just kind of like go down and have like a, like, welcome to the new Dan yeah. kind of celebration and, and just like let go. And so... I kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater in that, like, you know, letting myself do all those things, I had, I felt like I had to take a firm stance of, like, am I Christian? Am I not Christian? Like, can I go get drunk and high and do all these crazy things and still, like, feel and still call myself a Christian? And if I call myself a Christian and do all these things, can I have fun this weekend? Or do I need to renounce it all <laughs> right. and just let loose and not have, like, any of that guilt with me? Um so I went down, I came out to all my high school friends and like, you know, in private, like I didn't do it in like a big announcement, but I would pull them each aside throughout the night and kind of like, hey, just so you know, like, blah, 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 I'm gay, uh, hope that doesn't change anything. <laughs> and, you know, at that point, they were all, you know, in their, th I think their third year of university at a liberal college and they were all, but, you know, they, they were really good guys and they all let me, you know, they they accepted it and were encouraging about it. And in fact, I wouldn't say our relationship got a lot better because I have not spoken to any of those guys in the last like three or four years of my life. But at the time and like for that weekend and my interactions with them casually since have been better because there's not this big lie that I'm carrying around and I'm not yeah. trying to be someone I'm not. But yeah. even, even like the coming out process was so arrested and and damaged by everything that came before that there still wasn't like a well I guess 
obviously there wasn't like a sudden change to everything being easy but I guess what really pissed me off was just how much harder everything got once I came out (laughs) and not that like in what ways like because at least in my experience with my like straight Christian friends so that like Adonis RA of mine he had accidentally like had sex with one of his girlfriends when they were teens you know or you know I'd have another straight friend who had gotten like a blowjob or you know like they'd had like little like indiscretions indiscretions that they've like that they've never done again and that they like let God you know wash them and forgive them for and and blah 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 or I keep saying blah 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 but and uh, and and etc (laughs) and and I feel like, and even if they weren't bone-in girls as teens, like, they were at least dating them and often, like, kissing them. Um, but when I was a teen, I had used God as an excuse to never date anyone because I was so deeply closeted and I didn't, I didn't have any attraction with, towards girls and I didn't have any luck with girls anyways because I was fat, pimply, nerdy, and super-duper insecure. So even if I wasn't all of those things, I was still insecure and it didn't matter. Um, so I just like, I used God. I was like, oh, I don't think God really wants me to be wasting my time on a relationship right now. So, um, and once I pulled that card out, no one ever fought with me about it in high school. But because of that, like, I never experienced like young dating faux pas. You know, I never got to like date and make mistakes as a teenager and get better at relationships and dating and, yeah. And all these things that people, when they're 21, are usually at least somewhat accustomed to going on a date or kissing someone or knowing, like, when to make a move or just anything at the most basic level of, like, dating or rela- having a relationship with someone. Yeah. But I had gone 21 years of none of that. Right. And so, like, once I came out, all of a sudden it was, like, a whole other minefield of, like, well, not only do I now have to figure out how to date men, I just have to figure out how to date. Like, I need to figure out, like, what what this all even, like, feels like or looks like. And so I'm going to be a 21-year-old going on a date with someone who's probably dated and dumped and fucked, like, 20, 30 other people before he ever gets to <laughs> me. And, like, I'm going to be like, yeah, hey, man, sorry, this is my first date ever with anyone ever. I've never kissed, fucked, or done anything. Do you want to go out a date with me? You know, like... <laughs> Um, yeah, it was like one of those things where it was so hard. I mean, it was just incredibly difficult to come out because I had no, I had nothing to carry with me into my gay life that was positive in my straight life to bring with me. So it was basically like, okay, I'm gay. Now what? Like I'm gay, but I'm still overweight and I'm still have really bad skin problems and I still you know I'm pretty insecure so even though I'm gay like I still like can't bring myself to hit on anyone or date anyone or or fulfill any of these like carnal desires or any of these like needs that I I wanted beforehand and and so like what was that even worth like what was the point of even coming out if I if it just like if I'm still miserable and depressed right in time 
stemmed from like my upbringing in the church like I I felt so unprepared for for not just like being gay but for being an adult too yeah and I remember like you know the first several years of being on my own you know after I turned 21 and was living in the city and like you know I had roommates and stuff but I remember just feeling like so distinctly ill-prepared for for the world and not I mean like financially and all that but but like emotionally and not understanding like not understanding where my place is but also feeling like I wasted so many years avoiding that like that journey to myself right to figuring myself out yeah um where other people got to spend from like 12 years old to Mm -hmm. 24 like really just like embracing their journey because you know, they could be, like, exactly who they wanted to be the entire time that they've been alive and no right. one's ever stopped them. And, yeah. Um, but yeah. One of my one of my other guests, um, who uh, who is hetero and everything, cis and hetero, the way, um, so it didn't have um, the, the sexuality component to it um, of, of, a, of, what's the right word? I don't know, like, normalizing that or, or coming to terms or however you want to want to say it um but he what he said is he felt like he was sold a false bill of goods you know <laughs> yeah when it came to when it came to christian college um like when it came to uh, the sort of upbringing like it just doesn't it prepares you for a world that doesn't exist yeah it prepares you um, to live in a bubble yeah and that's like everyone it, Everyone is um, shortchanged by that. Everyone is ill-served by by that by by acting like we're not fully human, <laughs> really. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, and and I I think that that is really um, that's a that's like I, regrettably a really common experience. Like people brought up in uh, that come up in these in these environments. Yeah. Um, what another guest said, he feels weird everywhere. Like, you know, like you're weird everywhere. You're, you're like, you don't fit. If you, if you leave evangelicalism, you don't fit into the evangelicals anymore. You also have a background that no one else can understand. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, so like you're in this sort of weird spot. Um, but like developmentally, yeah. Entering adulthood it doesn't prepare you for that. It just doesn't. And especially like, yeah, sex is a big part of it. Like sex, like having a fantastical understanding of sex that does not match with reality at all. Um, really, I mean, it's a major part of adult life. And if you're not going to address it honestly, then you're going to screw over all the people that you're trying to teach. Well, and you got to think too, you know, like when you're a, a pubescent teen, like how much of your daily 
mental capacity is dedicated towards thinking about sex. Yeah, and, and, and so by no volition of your own. It's just yeah. like it's just the hormones surging through your body. Yeah, and so like, when like when all that time is dedicated to a fake notion of something, 